This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 538 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Long box roulette round one. Hal and Guy duke it out. Max gets the band back together. Kara cameos in her own book. Jimmy gets a licking and keeps on ticking. Pulp Fiction meets cosplay. And One Hour Rice. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, April 12th, 2020. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Or you can subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and maybe leave us a review somewhere. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. If you're a regular listener to the show or you're a regular comic book buyer, you're well aware that things have changed in light of coronavirus. Essentially, the production of new comics has ground to a halt with no indication of when, if, it will resume. The only real distribution channel, Diamond, is not accepting or sending out new stuff, and publishers have mostly shut down. A planned alternative method where you would receive a digital copy now and a paper copy when it became available quickly collapsed when publishers realized they would only get one payment for two copies. Which leaves this podcast in a quandary. How to do a show that focuses on new comics. Enter Long Box Roulette. So I have a collection of over 23,000 comics going back to the mid-80s with a handful from the 70s purchased when I was a kid or handed off from my brother. I used a random number generator to pick out a set of comics from that collection, which means we'll not only review them, but provide some context as to what was actually happening in continuity at the time. Place your bets. Green Lantern, number 25, June of 1992, by Jones, DeGuzman, Hamilton, Stanton, Tangle, and Bright. The cover price was $1.75. We kick off our random selection with a fairly significant issue. At this time, Earth's Green Lantern was Guy Gardner, after Hal Jordan went out to find himself, and Jon Stewart was doing penance for his role in Cosmic Odyssey. Guy was also in the JLA, which kicked off the Bwahaha era, and the rest of the league wanted him to move on, so they call Hal to step back in. Also, the Guardians are done with Guy as he screwed up time and time again, so they have reassigned Hal. Hal, now with a shock of white in his hair indicating how long he has been around, checks in with the league, hoping to find him there, only to find Fire and Ice complaining that they have become glorified waitresses for the rest of the group. No guy there, so Hal is off to Guy's ratty apartment, where he assumes he can talk Guy into stepping down. Come on, Hal. You had to know that wouldn't work. Guy tells Hal he's in charge and goads Hal about how he didn't have the guts to be a Green Lantern. So Guy gives him an offer, they duke it out, and the loser quits the core. 
Hal at first demurs, but Guy continues to goad him until the fight is on. From this point until the last few pages of the issue, we see that fight. The League arrives composed of Superman, Power Girl during her Orion's granddaughter era since there couldn't be other Kryptonians then, Aquaman, Fire and Ice, Elongated Man, Blue Beetle, Crimson Fox, again, we're in the tail end of Giffen's JLA era, who show up to stop the destruction, only to be stopped by the Green Lantern Corps, who's there to make sure the fight is allowed to go on. Fortunately, Jon Stewart convinces the opponents that they will destroy the city if they continue, so Guy suggests a fistfight with no rings. We learn that Guy has been juicing up, using his ring to keep him in shape and younger, huh? So Hal is quickly outmatched. Hal uses a feint and thinks he's taken out Guy with one punch, a reference to an early Giffen story of the JLA where Batman took out Guy with a single punch. Guy is incensed when Beetle references this, and the fight continues with Hal getting the worst of it. Hal finally lets Guy wear himself out, and then as both stagger, Hal considers compassion, thinking, Only a hard man could beat this battered, half-dead fool. Whack! It's a hard world. (laughs) Everybody cheers. Then Hal goes over to Guy, who assumes wants to just shake his hand. No Guy, the ring. Guy takes off his ring, which presumably goes back to the core. Guy basically says, you haven't seen the last of me, and he's right. Guy will get his own book, where he goes from getting a yellow ring to learning he's half alien with the ability to form armor and weapons. The less said about this book, the better. Meanwhile, Hal flies off to his next adventure. Little does he know that, within a year, Superman will die, and Coast City will be wiped out, which will lead him to madness, murder, parallax, and zero hour. Since this is such an old issue, we actually get the return of a letter column. Ooh. Justice League Generation Lost number 5, early September 2010, by Winnick, Giffen, Lepestri, and Ryan, cover price $2.99. This issue was part of the Brightest Day event, which came out after Darkest Night, so there's both League and Green Lantern references here. We get some background on Booster Gold's 25th century origin, a football player. Do we really think football will exist by then? I'm envisioning either rollerball or robot football, a la the Jetsons. Is caught cheating on games, which is why he stole tech and went back to the 20th century. Cut now to 2010, with the JLI partially reassembled, Booster, Fire, Ice, Captain Atom, two new Rocket Reds, and the Jaime Ray's Blue Beetle. Why is Ted Cord missing? Because Maxwell Lord killed him, and Max is talking holographically to the group. He's made the ultimate move to escape capture. He wiped the world's knowledge of his existence with only those heroes remembering him. Max just wants the band back together, but they're not having it. There's a sequence where one of the Rocket Red's armor turns out to be booby-trapped, forcing Cap to fly him into the sky to save the others as he explodes. Skeets and Jaime Scarab manages to track down Max, but first we have a few character moments. Booster asking Jaime to stay on, which he does. Cap and Ice discussing their earlier deaths. The other Rocket Red and Fire discussing his motivations to stay on. Then it's a flashback to Max asking Booster to join the League in the first place, where Booster became the sucker again. Now he and the team want revenge. The artwork is rather impressive. Maybe I'm just comparing it to the almost cartoony work in the previous comic. Of course, what is going on here and in the next comic, which happens to be from the same year, really doesn't matter because Flashpoint and the New 52 are about to make it all moot. (laughs) 
Supergirl number 47, January 2010 by Sterling and Camp, cover price $2.99. We're in the new Krypton era where the planet has been reborn. Why? Because DC was in the midst of the never-ending legal battle and it was unclear that they would actually own the super family. So they were publishing all the stuff that came after Siegel and Schuster. Monel essentially became Superman for a time, and all of the Silver Age trappings of Krypton were both shined up and made darker. This story is all about Allura, Supergirl's birth mother, now in charge of New Krypton after the murder of Zor-El. Supergirl is, at best, in a cameo here. We get flashbacks to their courtship, which blends elements of the Silver Age and burns antiseptic Krypton. The main story is about the capture and trial of Reactron, a forgettable villain of the time. A Kryptonian faction wants blood, but Allura wants a fair trial. Unfortunately, crypto-legal technicalities, he's from Earth and was taken to New Krypton. What about extradition? Throw the trial with elements of the Superman movie into chaos. A group flies in, they all have superpowers, and in the melee, Reactron is apparently disintegrated. Turns out that it's a trick by Allura, who has spirited him away for secret torture in order to find out who on Earth is moving against them. All interesting, but again moot since it's all going to be reset in a matter of months. The World of Metropolis, number 404, November 1988, by Byrne, Mortimer, Giordano, and Trapani, cover price $1. Ooh. Once John Byrne did the first post-Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot, Man of Steel, there was a clamor to fill in all the holes. So DC had Byrne put together three interlocking four-issue miniseries, World of Krypton, World of Smallville, and this one. World of Metropolis gave us stories about Lois, Perry, Lex, the Daily Planet, and Jimmy, who this issue actually deals with. We see Jimmy in another scrape about to be drowned in a sinking ship by the mob, only to use his ultrasonic signal watch at the last moment, calling Superman to save him. Now, the rest of the issue is about how that watch came to be. In the Silver Age, Superman gave the watch to Jimmy as a gift in order to keep him safe. It was made of various extraterrestrial materials, which allowed Superman to hear it go off anywhere on Earth, and even off-planet once, via Mort Weisinger logic. In the post-burn world, Jimmy builds the watch himself after an experience as a teenager working as a copy boy at the planet at a time when Superman was just getting started. While doing odd jobs at the planet, he runs into new friends Clark Kent and Lois Lane, the latter discussing why any photo of Superman shows his face blurred. Cal did this to avoid people learning his identity, something that would make no sense in our Instagrammable world since he would have to stay blurry all the time. Lois takes Jimmy to lunch and supports his plans to eventually become a reporter. Also, Jimmy asks why Lois is so hard on Lex. Luther was a respected businessman at this time. Meanwhile, Jimmy's friend takes a drug overdose because of her parents' alcohol and mental issues she just wants to check out. With no way to get help in time otherwise, he quickly builds a single device with stuff in his bedroom. Apparently, he's quite the hacker, generating an ultrasonic signal that brings the Man of Steel to save her. Superman suggests that Jimmy build a watch based on this device so he's available if needed. The girl is sent to a foster home, and back in the current day, 1988, Jimmy takes her out for a burger. Despite this issue being so far back, there is no letter column. Maybe because it's a miniseries? Tom Strong, number 16 from America's Best Comics, April 2002 by Moore, Sprouse, Story, Sinclair, and Klein, cover price $2.95. America's Best Comics was an imprint of Wildstorm, itself an imprint of Image, created by Alan Moore. 
It was a place for Moore to do his weirdest work unfettered by corporate rules. Ironically, Wildstorm, and in turn, ABC, was bought out by DC, leaving Alan Moore exactly where he didn't want to be. Saying he was unhappy is the understatement of the millennium. He basically created his own publishing company going forward. Anyway, Tom Strong is one of Moore's interpretations of Pulp Heroes. In this case, Doc Savage was a major influence here. Coincidentally, the latest episode of From the Pop Culture Bunker, number 211, gives you some background on that character. However, Tom is not really the star of this issue, but the weird writer is. A cyberpunk cowboy with three eyes riding a small spaceship. This is cosplay gold. And he provides backstory throughout the issue. He's an Earth cowboy from the 1800s who is abducted by aliens who give him a third eye and apparent immortality. He escapes them and rides throughout the universe only to learn that Earth is soon to be visited by a race of giant warrior ants. He hightails it to Millennium City in current day to warn the locals, which gets Tom Strong involved. There's also a Newsboy Legion-esque group, some of which are apparently kidnapped by the writer, except he's just trying to figure out who to talk to. He reaches out to Tom Strong, who punches him out before learning he's a friend, with a commentary on the classic when two heroes meet, they fight trope. Strong takes the writer back to his headquarters, meeting wife Dwala, daughter Tesla, her boyfriend, a fire being, gorilla valet Solomon, and robot butler Newman. At one point, there's a reference to the fire being with characters breaking the fourth wall. Hey, I think that guy is that what's-his-face from issue 8. No, no, issue 10. Tom takes the writer aside, explaining that there are no real defenses against such an army and that they're essentially it. I think we better circle the wagons. Cole Sprouse's artwork is fantastic, while Moore's just throws these bizarre concepts at you like they're popcorn. Anne Rice's The Witching Hour, number two of 13 from Millennium Comics, 1993, by Rice, Collins, Eagleson, and Sagara, cover price $2.50. Well, this series actually ended up with only five issues of The 13 Promised. I can't remember if they actually finished the story in those five issues or not. I don't think they did. It is based on the first of the Mayfair Witch novels by Rice, which had been published three years earlier in 1990. That series was never as popular as the interview with a vampire sequence. In this issue, we start learning about Rowan Mayfair, a neurosurgeon in San Francisco who saves people every day in the hospital, but also miraculously rescued Michael Curry, who had drowned in a storm at sea and whom she revived. At first, she is reluctant to meet him, but after learning that he has gained a psychic ability after his near-death experience, she agrees. It turns out that Rowan also has a psychic ability. She has twice killed people by willing veins in their head to burst, causing strokes. Meanwhile, Michael is getting ready to go to New Orleans and is happy that Rowan has decided to meet him. Michael is concerned that Rowan won't believe in his newfound powers since she is a neurosurgeon. Instead, she lets Michael read her, and he sees that she has the strange abilities as well. And he learns that Rowan was born in New Orleans as he was. Michael tells Rowan of the visions he is having and the pressure he is feeling to return to New Orleans to visit a house he knew as a child. It was unclear how long Rowan and Michael spent together here, but it was at least a few days. I I thought he was supposed to go to the airport, but instead they fall in love, and eventually Michael does make it to the plane. Both he and Rowan recognize an old English gentleman from somewhere, 
And then Michael is off to New Orleans. Once he arrives, he goes to visit the mysterious house, sees the same man on the porch he had seen before, looking exactly the same as he had 20 years before, and is so taken aback he knocks down the cabbie. Then suddenly the old English gentleman is there saying he wants to help Michael. Michael asks if he sees the man on the porch, but the man isn't there. Not in this issue. We learn that the old English man is from the Talamasca, an order of old magicians that deal with the supernatural, and he has been tracking the Mayfair witches. As I recall, the books went way off the deep end of bizarre and weird as they went on. I'm not sure I ever even finished reading this series of novels, and of course, the comic series never finished either. All right, before we get out of here, it's time to play America's fastest growing new game show. Guess who's on the cover of Entertainment Weekly? Uh, Mark, I don't have an Entertainment Weekly this week. Oh, okay. Well, then let's bring out the big newsstand. No whammies, no whammies, no whammies. Let's get a magazine that hasn't already been shut down and stop. People Magazine, Mark. Yay. Okay, are you ready? Sure. Okay. TV related? Yes. Okay, is it one person on the cover? Uh, no. Is it two? Yes. Okay, a man and a woman? Yes. Uh, are they a couple, like a romantic couple um, in real life? Well, maybe. We, do, we don't know. Yeah. Okay, uh, so they're a couple in a movie, or no, in a TV show. In a TV show. Okay, is this TV show on broadcast TV? No. Is it on cable? Yeah. Is It's not pay cable. Um, wait, no, It's. I think it's just on streaming. It's on streaming. Okay. Yeah. Um, is the show genre-related? Um, no. It's. Um, is it a drama? No. Is it a comedy? No. Is it a documentary? Yes. It's a documentary, uh, and there's two people on the cover. Yes. Is this something that is very much in the news right now? Yes. <laughs> so it's that darn tiger... Whatever, Tiger Wolf, Tiger Beat, what's it called? <laughs> Tiger King. Tiger King. I gave you that one. <laughs> yeah, you did boy. give me that one. I knew it was Tiger something. Yeah. I've been trying to avoid that whole Tiger thing. My sister's <laughs> trying to get us to watch it, so we'll have to see. <laughs> Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.